the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Do you remember where you were when you found out that Kobe Bryant died? Today is the anniversary of his death. And I thought we would talk about him because I haven't before. And sideline sanity refers to my time on the sidelines. And I spent many years covering the NBA, many years. I covered Kobe Bryant during the whole fiasco with the Denver, Colorado rape accusation. I covered Kobe for a lot of his career. I saw him win. I saw him lose. I saw him take breathtaking shots. I saw him make unbelievable passes. I interviewed him. Um, Kobe Bryant was a force of nature. He had an astonishing career. And I think what makes his story so tragic is not just that he was lost. It was the way he was lost. I mean, it's a horrifying accident surrounded by other people whom he loved, namely his daughter and other teammates, and they were going off to this basketball event. And it was so tragic. I was riding my Peloton in the basement when my son came down, and he was probably 15 at the time, maybe 14, and he had that breathless kind of wide-eyed... He was so nervous to tell me what he learned, that Kobe Bryant had died, that he had that sort of nervous laughter that a teenager has when they're announcing something important. Mom, mom, you're not going to believe this. And he told me, and I said, that's just, that's got to be fake news. That's got to be, no, it can't be. I'm sorry. That doesn't happen that way. And then upon further review, yes, it was real. It was happening. And it was so shocking. It's interesting. We have this conversation that, you know, one person's death shouldn't be more important than another, shouldn't be more tragic than another. I beg to differ on this point. My dad suffered a stroke. He ailed for many years. He suffered to the point where we wanted him to take that final last breath so he would not suffer anymore. On the other hand, my father-in-law had a stroke at a much younger age and was taken to us way too quickly, taken from us way too quickly and way too early. You know, a soldier goes off to war, and if they die, it's tragic and awful, but it is part of the risk. Police officers face that risk. Firefighters face that risk. So I think what maybe defines a tragedy is something that is so unexpected and so hard to explain and so untimely that it's hard to get your head around. And then when it's someone who has been idolized like Kobe has, 
good, bad, or indifferent, it, it takes on a, a completely different tone. And then the fact that his daughter was with him. It touched many people, sports fans, non-sports fans, young, old, those who had watched and those who hadn't. But Michael Sielski wrote a book called Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. The Rise is the name of the book, The Rise. And it is, for as many years as I covered Kobe Bryant, there's so much in this book that I didn't know and I want to share it with you. And so Michael Sielski joins us next. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Well, we are talking January of 2023, so this will be the third anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death. Michael Sielski is joining us. I told you this is the book, The Rise, um, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. Um, thanks thanks for being with us. I, do you, you know, the fact that this is an anniversary of a death, I, I, I don't know. It, 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 takes, it makes me want to just kind of remember and when you go there and you remember that, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it about Kobe? Is it about the death? What is it? I think, Michelle, mostly it's about the moment that I found out. And I think that's probably what most people think of uh, when they think back to a moment like that, whether you're talking about Kobe Bryant's death, um, the Challenger disaster, any sort of 9-11, anything along those lines. And I, I think back to being in my car uh, driving with my sons who were eight and five at the time and being at a stoplight and checking my Twitter feed, which I know I'm not supposed to do, but I did and saying out loud, uh, oh my God. And my eight-year-old getting a little nervous, what's wrong, dad? And, uh, and I said, I would, I'll tell you when I get, when we get home, buddy. And, uh, we got home and I told him that Kobe Bryant had died in a helicopter crash. And, and the irony of it, um, I don't know if it's ironic or fitting, um, is that, we were hustling home so that my eight-year-old could get changed to go to a basketball game. And, uh, oh. um, you know, I think I'm, a, like I said, I think I'm, a, I'm like a lot of people who just remember exactly where they were and what they were doing when they heard what had happened. I described the same thing. I, I remember it exactly. And then I remember, you know, having covered him for so long in the NBA, I, I remember, I, I don't know what made me cry so hard if it was just, the tragedy of it all, um, knowing that this guy had a next chapter in his life that was being stolen, that his daughter's whole life was being stolen, that the rest of his family's future was being stolen. All of it was so hard. And the other people in the helicopter as well, I mean, it all was just such a horribly tragic story. But what your book does so well, and I highly recommend it, and it, it's it's been out now, but I, I'm glad to talk to you about it. Um, it talks about his life. And as much as I covered Kobe, there are so many details in here that I didn't know. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. 
Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So how did you start? Where did you start with this whole journey? So, I mean, I had covered him a little bit in my role as a columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer and and being a sports writer in the Philadelphia area before that. Um, And after his death, I wrote about half a dozen columns for the Inquirer about him. And I knew a couple of people who were uh, close to him, close to Kobe while he was in high school, in particular, a guy named Jeremy Treatment, who was kind of Kobe's confidant slash media relations representative, so to speak. He was the guy who, when Kobe was at Lower Marion, would set up all his interviews and handle media requests and things like that. And I knew Greg Downer, who's been the head basketball, boys basketball coach at Lower Marion for more than 30 years. Um, so at, at some point in the month or two after Kobe had died, uh, I just kind of thought to myself, you know, everybody feels like they grew up with him because he entered the NBA at such a young age. He was 17 uh, when he was drafted and then traded to the Lakers. But I knew from being from the Philly area and writing about sports and and the region for so long that there was this kind of origin story that people in the Philadelphia area knew pretty well, but that I felt like the country at large and maybe people around the world didn't know as well. And I thought that if I could tell that story the right way, his origin story, then people could read a book about that and come to understand the man in full and not just the good stuff, not just the legendary basketball stuff, but all of it, the black, the white, the gray, the good, the bad, uh, the flawed, all of it. And uh, in the aftermath of his death, I reached out to Jeremy and Greg uh, and asked if they would help um, open doors, talk to me, all of that. And they were very gracious and they did. And I kind of took off from there. It is interesting. The Lower Marion thing is interesting to me because we all remember that name of that high school for one reason, because of Kobe Bryant. I mean, it was, they sort of were synonymous at that time. And my son is 17 now. And I try to picture if he were in that (laughs) scenario and it's almost impossible to imagine. Now, Kobe's whole life was very different from most teenagers the, the the time spent in Italy, the, the the fact that his dad was who he was. And I think I want to get that from you. Encapsulate for us, if you could, his dad and and the arc of their story together. Sure. Well, his dad, Joe, was a Philadelphia basketball legend at a very early age. He was uh, probably the best player in the city, certainly, certainly the best public school high school player in the city. He grew up in southwest Philadelphia, went to Bartram High School, and then went on and played at my alma mater, LaSalle College at the time um, in, in Philadelphia, was a standout player there, was a first-round draft pick, uh, came out of school early. And if he had stayed in at LaSalle for one more year, he probably would have been the number one overall pick in the draft the following year. But he came out, he was um, drafted by the Warriors, ended up with the Sixers, 
which you would think would be would have been a dream scenario for Joe Bryant. He's yeah. Gonna play, yeah, he's going to play for his hometown NBA team. Problem was at the time the Sixers were kind of an up and coming team. Um, they had gone from bad and were getting better, and they're about to acquire Julius Irving and really take off with a very talented roster. And Joe just couldn't fit in there, and he never really fit in as an NBA player. He was kind of ahead of his time. He was um, in some ways Magic Johnson before Magic Johnson came around. He was six foot nine, six foot ten, could handle, could shoot, could pass, could do all the things that big men at that time weren't allowed to do. And so he got very frustrated with how his career turned out in the NBA, and eventually as you know, went and played professionally in Italy and basically became a superstar over there. The superstar that he never got to be in the United States, um, yeah. could shoot whenever he wants, score whenever he wanted. And, and you have to imagine this existence for the Bryant family, Michelle. Um, you know, you've got Joe and Pam, you've got three kids. They're living in Italy, basically in the countryside. Um, they don't encounter, they, they encounter very few Americans. They don't they rarely encounter anyone who looks like them you know, very few black families. So it's kind of this cloistered, you know, isolated existence that Kobe grows up in. Uh, he comes back to the Philadelphia area every summer for a couple of months to see family, but really it's just him and, and his sisters and his parents uh, for most of his adolescence until he's 13 and Joe's career, professional career abroad ends and he moves the family back to suburban Philadelphia. And and it's, it's so you would think to yourself, OK, here, this is perfect because there's this dad who has all this basketball experience, ups and downs, highs and lows, success and failure, and sees his son coming around as a phenom. There are many ways this could go. You know, the phenom can either say, I don't want to be anything like you. I want to be just like you. Stay out of it. Be into it. It. it it was weird though. It never seemed um, to have that sort of storybook connection that you would expect from a father and son like that. Well, it's interesting on a couple of levels. Number one, I think Joe was very much an inspiration to Kobe in that Kobe wanted to kind of rec reclaim the Bryant good name in basketball. Um, Joe, as I said, was pretty bitter about how his career had turned out in the NBA. And I think Kobe was motivated to say, I'm going to have the career that my dad couldn't have. So there's that aspect of it. Then you have kind of the melding in Kobe of Joe and Pam. In Joe, you have all the basketball talent and skill and the expertise, and they're out there in the driveway of their house, and Joe is showing them you know, how to post someone up, how to body somebody, all the, how to shoot a jump shot, all the things that a great player needs to know. But the killer instinct, the Mamba mentality that became synonymous with Kobe really came from his mother, Pam. Um, she was the one who ran the household. She was the one who insisted that her kids get their homework finished before they could play volleyball or basketball or do any of the sports that they wanted to do. Um, she was the one who was very protective of her family and of Kobe in particular. Um, you know, there's an anecdote in there when, when the family lived in Italy, Pam would go out for, to jog in the morning and, you know, Italian gentleman driving through the countryside or running past her would catcall her. And she didn't take kindly to that. She would scream and shout right back at them, often in language that I can't use on this podcast. <laughs> so she was, she's a very tough lady. And I think you bring those two kinds of personalities and people together and you end up with what, you know, Kobe ends up with, um, you know, this, both this Mamba mentality, this feeling that I'm going to destroy every competitor and I'm going to excel. And I, and I know in my bones at the earliest possible age, I'm going to be the best basketball player on the planet. And then you have Joe kind of giving him 
genetically and through their life together, all the tools that he would need to become that player. And then, of course, we know that at a very early age, Kobe decides to get married. We'll take a quick break and discuss how that marriage impacted the rest of the story. Stay with us. I get kind of sick and nauseous and dizzy watching the stock market these days. I don't know about you. It's not like my life depends upon it, but I think, what does that say about where we are in the world, the economy, gas prices, inflation, the fact that I can't buy eggs for you know less than $8. Um, we've got a war going on. There's so much going on and it's hard to know how to plan financially, right? But you have some options, even when there is inflation, even when the dollar is weakening, Gold is a hedge against inflation. Gold protects against a weakening dollar. And gold prices are going up as investors continue to turn to that precious metal for those very valuable reasons. Legacy precious metals, you hear me talk about them all the time. It's because they're the only company I trust for investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that's going to protect your wealth and your retirement. So, you know, why don't you give them a call and do it today? Because the sooner you find out, the sooner you can get started, the sooner you protect your money and your retirement. Remember 2008? Those who invested in gold saw significant gains, some really big gains. Others, well, they lost their retirements. So think about this as a long-term play. They can advise you on all your options. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. All right, Michael. So Kobe meets Vanessa, and they're both very young. Why didn't the parents approve of this marriage? From what I understand, uh, and Joe and Pam you know, have rarely spoke about this publicly, and um, it's been a situation that's kind of shrouded in a bit of mystery. Um, they just thought Kobe was too young. They thought Kobe was too young. He was 21 when he met Vanessa. He was 22 when they got married. She was 17 when they met, 18 when they got married. Uh, and it was a situation where they had been, they, Joe and Pam, had been so involved in Kobe's life right up until the moment that he entered the NBA and even into his time in the NBA. I mean, remember, he buys a house after he ends up with the Lakers on Pacific in Pacific Palisades. <laughs> and he's living with Joe and Pam. They're there. Yeah. She's she's cooking him dinner every night. And he's coming home to his mom and dad and one of his sisters. And I think it went very quickly for him from, I need my mother and father. They're an intrinsic part of my life to, I want to be a man. And it's time for me to be on my own and make my own decisions. One of the things that I touch on in the book is I had a close friend of Kobe's tell me that Kobe wanted everything early. He wanted to get to the NBA early. He wanted to get married early. He wanted to have a family early. That's what he was all about. And I think that led to the conflict with Joe and Pam uh, that eventually led to their falling out and kind of the dissolution of their relationship. Uh, that part of it is really sad for me. And, you know, and then we sort of thought, well, maybe Joe and Pam were right when when Kobe and Vanessa got into some marital troubles I was covering the NBA and a lot of Lakers games when Kobe was flying back and forth from Colorado. As you studied that, because this is a, a big part of Kobe's story, that he was accused of, of raping a hotel employee. As you covered and, and, and read into this and researched, 
What is your ultimate takeaway from that particular incident in Colorado? Not good for Kobe in any regard. Um, you know, look, he he was not convicted of a crime, um, but at a bare minimum, he was guilty of incredibly bad judgment of betraying his oath as a husband. Um, and it changed the way people looked at him. It was Absolutely. one, you know, it was it was one thing to be the quote unquote villain in any kind of controversy with Shaquille O'Neal or Phil Jackson. <laughs> yeah, you know, you yeah. can you can always frame that as Kobe's competitive. You know, Shaq isn't as competitive. You know, Kobe's a diva. Phil's a diva too. Uh, but this was something different. This this was. I mean, I, I've gotten some feedback from people. Uh, since the book came out last year, who've told me they can't bring themselves to read the book because they can't bring themselves to consider Kobe Bryant as anything other than a bad person. And I completely understand that, um, you know, but I wanted to try to give a fuller accounting of his life, um, you know, through the prism of his early years. And um, there, there is some material in the book that kind of, you know, addresses this. And I think that in the end, though, Michelle, you know, when when you were talking earlier in the show here about your feelings and a lot of people's feelings on the day he died. One of the things that I think it's really important to mention about Kobe is that he had the kind of arc to his story that the American public really follows and appreciates. You know, it's the thing that differentiates him from Michael Jordan. The worst thing you could probably say about Michael Jordan when he was playing was uh, he gambled a bit, you know, he gambled a lot, which, you know, to some people probably made him feel more accessible. And he had that line, you know, oh, Republicans buy sneakers too, which, you know, could make him feel corporate and soulless and whatever. Kobe went down to the depths. You know, he he put his very freedom at stake. Um, He he damaged and tarnished the woman that he was in the room with, you know, regardless of whatever happened. Um, And whatever happened is is pretty bad. Uh, And he came out of that, or at least we perceive that he came out of that to win more championships and to become a girl dad and to become a mentor to younger NBA players. And whether that actually was all true or not, we perceive it was true. And we in the public love a story of redemption. So I think that's a big component to how people view Kobe and why they still feel this kind of connection to him after all these years. The girl dad stuff is, is important. And, and because even after all of that happened, Kobe and Vanessa managed to remain together raise their family, have additional children, and continue on as this family, this girl dad who was a big proponent of his daughter's basketball career and was always there for her and was getting involved in some other stuff, right? Getting involved in some filmmaking and and other things that could have showed us another side of Kobe. He was he was in his early 40s. So we were ready for sort of the next chapter and how is this going to go? And I think there were a lot of, I know I was thinking, how's this going to go? What's this going to be like? What am I going to learn about this man? How is he going to change and grow? And and can we now, are we going to see this all the way through? And I don't think we got to see it all the way through. It's not as though we got to see the complete transformation. We saw it certainly beginning and on its way. And I, I think that that's what made it one of the things that made it so difficult um, you, you, you describe the, uh, for lack of a better term, I don't know if you can call it the funeral, but the ceremony, uh, remind me, was it at Staples or at the Great Sta- Western yeah, Farm? No, at Staples. It was at Staples. Okay. Yeah. 
I've grown up in LA and covered games in both buildings. I some that this two sometimes merge for me, but mm-hmm. so Staples is huge and it was full. And was it a? I, I, I was it. Was it people just sort of regretting that they felt any kind of negativity toward Kobe at all? Was it? true really that Michael Jordan thought of him as a little brother did he and Shaq actually reconcile I mean how do you think which people in Kobe's life do you think felt the most um unresolved at that moment I think probably some of the names you mentioned um I think in part for the for the very factor that you touched on which was this feeling that he was going to be around for a long time that you know Kobe's going to be there for a while. Kobe's going to be in the public eye. Kobe's softening as he's getting older. And so there's going to be the opportunity to get to know him better as he gets older. And so did Michael Jordan really think of him as a little brother? I think to a certain extent he probably did. Um, You know, but we only get so many glimpses of what Jordan really thought of Kobe and what Kobe really thought of Michael um, through the prism of things like the last dance or yeah. a brief interview that one or two of them might have done. Uh, and, and I think that is the big factor. I, I can tell you this, Michelle, there was nothing unresolved for the people who knew Kobe when he was young. They loved him unconditionally. They held him in their minds and their hearts to a great degree as he was when they knew him as a high school kid. He wasn't just Lakers superstar Kobe Bryant. He was kid who sat across from me in English class, Kobe Bryant. He was kid who was involved in the uh, student voice at Lower Marion High School, the Black Student Union. He was the kid who, when the basketball team's bus was uh, going over a bridge, he was white knuckling it because he was afraid of heights and was looking down at the water below the bus and getting a little nervous. That's what they remember about him. They don't think of buzzer beater uh, against the Spurs or, you know, 81 points against the Toronto Raptors. They think of this kind of shooting star that they got the chance to ride for a little while. All right, Michael Sielski, you did so much research. This book is, I I, I really recommend it. Um, it's, it's such a good look at the, the, the life, as you can tell, you know, so many details. What is your now, after going through all of that, after doing all the research, after kind of journeying through the entire life, how would you describe, you must feel a little bit like you know him. How would you describe Kobe Bryant? I think Kobe is in some ways the exemplar of the benefits and the costs of total devotion to the pursuit of greatness. Uh, It doesn't come without having to pay a price. And even at that young age, at his young age, you can see that. Uh, his, his academic mentor, for instance, at Lower Marion High School, an English teacher named Jeannie Mastriano told me that Kobe said to her once, you know, I dribble myself to sleep at night. And that's such a poignant line to me, Michelle, the idea that, you know, he didn't date much when he was in high school. His buddies would go out in the summertime to see movies. You know, I, I, Kobe and I basically were peers. I'm three years older than he was. So, Learning about his adolescence and his time in high school, I felt a bit of a connection to him in that we were of the same generation. Now, in other ways, I felt I couldn't, there, there'd be no way I could understand what he was experiencing and going through. I mean, 
you know, when the family moves back, he kind of falls out of the sky like an alien almost. I mean, he doesn't know what's cool to wear, cool to listen to, cool to watch. He's got to learn all that through his four years of high school, you know, as a black kid in a, in a kind of posh suburban suburb, uh, suburban Philadelphia community, I should say. But he was so single-minded about his pursuit of, I'm going to be the best basketball player in the world, uh, that on the one hand, people admired him and you, and you learn these anecdotes about him and you say to yourself, that's amazing. I wish I could bring myself to do that. But then you see the other side of it. Some of the things we've already talked about, um, the fact that he didn't keep in contact with all that many people from his high school years. It was like they kind of had faded from view for him in some ways that he had left that part of his life behind and he really wasn't going to look back. Uh, and as you said, he was moving on to other things, whether it was writing, making movies, being a girl dad, all these sorts of things that um, that single mindedness sounds wonderful in theory. And in many ways it is in practice. But as I said, there's a price to pay, too. Well, certainly the price wasn't expected to be his life in the way that it was lost. And I, I, again, the fact that his young daughter was with him is so excruciating to me. It's, it, it's just, it's just hard to fathom from your, uh, we'll finish with this. How is his family? Uh, what, uh, obviously Joe and Pam have done a remarkable job at staying low profile at keeping private you don't hear from them and you hear very little from Vanessa. Certainly she's, she's fighting for, you know, to keep the legacy alive and that sort of thing. But how has Vanessa and that family moved on at this point to your knowledge? I, I think it's been very difficult for them from everything I've gathered. I, I reached out to Vanessa and to representatives of her to try to see if she would speak to me for the book. And, and she declined, but she said, you know, I'm not going to, uh, stand in your way in trying to write about this. Um, you know, look, I mean, she's a widow who lost one of her daughters. I mean, you simply cannot imagine being put in that kind of position. Um, no. you know, I'm a parent. I know you're a parent. You just, it's your worst nightmare. Um, and, and every bit as bad is what Joe and Pam are dealing with. Um, yeah. I reached out to them as well, you know, sent them a letter, asked them if they would speak to me. And I never heard back. I know they're, they, they're aware of the book, but, um, they, they did not want to speak to me. And to my knowledge, they haven't spoken to anyone publicly really yeah. since Kobe's death. And, you know, you want to try to put yourself in their shoes if you can, but I just feel like it's so unimaginable, um, that, that it's, it's impossible to do. Well, for people who are interested, it's a, it's a tremendous read. Um, take your time with it, take it at your own pace, but there is so much good information, so much well-researched stuff. Mike, I, I commend you on the book. I know it's, we're, I, you know, we're late to the party here on this, but I thought on this anniversary, it would be great to talk to you. And I'm glad that we did. It doesn't make it any easier. I, I still, you know, I still kind of mourn this. I, I, I said in the introduction, every death is, is tough. But they're not all the same. Some people die tragically. Some people die expectedly. This was completely tragic. And, um, and, and this just paints a really interesting picture of his childhood, of his life. And so I congratulate you on the book, and I thank you for sharing all the knowledge with us. I really appreciate that, Michelle. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Likewise. The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality by Mike Sielski. 
check it out on this anniversary or anytime at all. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Don't forget, be brave and do good. Always a good day when Charles Thorngren of Legacy Precious Metals can join us and answer some really different questions. And I thought of a few new ones for you, Charles, if that's okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated and we hear so much about gold and silver and, and precious metals. So if I could just ask this broad question, what is the role of gold mm. in a portfolio? Great question. And when we look at that and the answer to that is, has a couple of different features to it. It depends on the individual, but its main purpose is the insurance policy for your finances. It is meant to be the foundation by which you do all other things, right? We know that gold and silver um, have an inverse relationship to the dollar. Um, it protects your purchasing power. So when we invest, that's what we're saying. We want to make sure that we have the ability to manage our money and have our money do what we need it to do for us. It's not the collection of dollars for dollar's sake, but for what it does for us, how we pay our bills, how we retire, how we feed our family, how we uh, go on and bless others and, and donate to causes we believe in. That's what money does for us. It's not the dollar itself. It's the thing it provides for us. And what gold does is make sure that that money continues to have purchasing value. Because there are times we find that, hey, my money doesn't have the same purchasing Absolutely. value it had last month. Absolutely. And, and this is a unique time. We're seeing it. I, I This term called hyperinflation, which usually refers to, you know, inflation in the 18s and 20 percent. I consider this a time of hyperinflation because it's so much more than what we're normally used to. Right. When we prepare and we budget and we say, this is the course of my life and this is how I'm going to do things. This is where I'm going to put my money. We use some basic numbers, two to three percent inflation. That's what the Fed says is good. But that's not even great. Over a lifetime, that's a lot of inflationary loss to your dollar. But when you have a period where it jumps to the points where we're at now and we're in the eight and a half, nine is going to be into the double digits soon. In this shorter time frame, that's a hyperinflation situation to me because it throws everything off dynamically and so, so radically. You do, you do see us going into double digits, huh? Absolutely. Oh. The Fed even sees us going into double digits. You know, there was a, an interesting report where one of the, the Fed chairmen were saying, 2023, we're not going to talk about that. But in 2024, by summer, we may be able to start to drop the interest rates. When someone tells me they're in charge of something, but they say this new year that's coming, just forget about that completely. We're not even going to talk about that. That's a bad sign. <laughs> they don't want you to think about it. Exactly. They, don't, they want you to look past it and sort of ride it, ride it off and... right now. Just don't even think yeah. about it. It's going to be bad. But hey, 2024, though, you know, and interestingly enough, right around the time of an election, they want to start talking about what they're going to do. Isn't that fascinating? That timing is just really interesting. Before I we finish up here, I, I'm always fascinated with how gold is priced. How, how do we get a price of gold? You know, the spot price of gold is really determined by the world market. The London Bullion Exchange, right? And this has been for hundreds of years now, um, sets a price and the rest of the world revolves around that. Now, 
our currency will determine how much more than it is in the pound and things like that. And there's a calculation for it. But that's one of the great things about gold and silver. Their value is recognized around the world. No matter what currency, what country you're in, it has value. Uh, I just recently come back from a trip where I was overseas not that long ago, and I bring gold with me everywhere I go. Um, not a lot, so don't try to catch me in the airport. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I have something that is valuable no matter where I'm at. I can go anywhere in any country and turn that into its currency in no time at all. You're talking about carrying around physical gold? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Do you, do you, do you How walk much around is with safe dollars? to carry around if you're well? No, you're right. Uh, so if and and that gold is going to have the same uh, value across the board, no matter no matter where I go, slight right? Because very slight deviations, yep. but it's not very large. Okay. You know, usually less than one yeah. percent difference in the price. This is really interesting. I, I can't let you go before I ask you this because I'm picturing you now walking around with some <laughs> you know, gold coins in your pocket. I'm thinking, wow, that would feel risky. But when you go into another country, for instance, with some gold, how easy is it for you to go say, here, I want to exchange this for, or, you know, I'm assuming you're not going to a restaurant and slapping down a gold no. bullion or something. No. But you could overseas. In certain places of the world, they recognize that just like regular currency. Wow. But I wouldn't use but, gold. But it's dinner. easy to ch exchange once you get to another country? Yeah. Just very easy. Most of the time you can do it at the airport. Same places where they change currency. A lot of them will change uh, metals too. And is physical bullion the, the, the best way to go? It is. It really is. When you're traveling or always in any investment in gold? Uh, you know, there's certain things you can do outside of just bullion that may make sense once you've laid a portfolio down, right? Um, diversity in metals is important too, but your basis for all investments should be your basic bullion, whether it's gold or silver. You want to have that foundation set in the base metal itself, giving you the most value that you can get. And obviously every person's situation is unique. So why not just call and speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals, 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or they can always download your free investor's guide, right? It's true. at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Do you have any gold on you right now? I do. Give me half a second. I got to see this. I just want to see. I mean, I, it's, it seems like almost like in the old days when you walk around with that, you know, Mr. Scrooge and his gold coins in his pocket. Not that you're, can you sort of turn it around and show us that? That's now for our listeners, they're not going to be able to, to, just to see what we're seeing, but you've got a little container and they're just, they're kind of the size of half dollars, right? Yeah. Would just about a half dollar. And this or? is, this is the American gold Eagle. And this is a, uh, $22,000 worth of metal. Yikes. Charles isn't messing around <laughs> and neither are we, but please go get your questions answered. This is such an important time to be thinking about your money, your long-term play in addition to every short-term concern that you have. Charles, always good to talk to you. Thank you so My much. My pleasure. And you know what? 2023 is coming. Call now, find out <laughs> so you can make your decisions for, before then. Yes. And before the elections again, yes. and they can tell us what they're going to tell us then. They're, they're telling you to overlook 2023. That means you now's the time to inquire. Absolutely. Again, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Charles Thorngren, always good to see you. Thank you.
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.